John chapter one, beginning in verse twenty nine, it says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water and John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. John, the apostle, provides us with an extraordinary picture, a snapshot of the first week of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. It began in chapter one, verse 19, and will continue through chapter two, verse 11. The offense of the first day were recorded in verses 19 through 28. The story of the second day are told here in verses 29 through 34. The third day unfolds in verses 35 through 39. The three short verses, verse 40, 41 and 42, constitute the fourth day. The events of the fifth day are told in verses 43 through 52. The sixth day is completely silent. And the events of the last day of the week are told in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The Gospel of John presents a parade of witnesses to the greatness, the grandeur, the glory, the uniqueness of Jesus. Here is the witness of John the Baptist in verses 19 through 34. Next will be the witness of those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, the disciples who walk with Jesus. And finally, there is the witness of Jesus Christ's own miraculous powers as he turns the water into wine in chapter two, verses one through eleven. In a court of law, a witness provides a testimony concerning a claim. In a more fundamental sense, a witness comes to a court of law and swears to give truthful information or provide truthful evidence so that a proper conclusion might be drawn. John's purpose in writing this gospel is found, remember, in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that Believing you may have life in his name. You can imagine how important and how powerful the quality and the quantity of the witnesses are in presenting a persuasive case. The stakes are greater than most people realize because the stakes are the very life, the very soul of each and every human being who is ever born. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between light and darkness. It's the difference between having life in Christ or not having life in Christ. The person who receives the spirit of God 
has the presence and the care of God in his or her life. And so the testimony John the Baptist gives concerning Jesus continues with these extraordinary titles. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, the preeminent and preexistent one. Jesus, the Messiah on whom the spirit of God remains. Jesus, the son of God. So John's message was certainly a message of repentance. But the people of Israel needed more than just a message of repentance. They needed redemption. John's baptism was a baptism of cleansing in water. A cleansing meant to wash away the impurities of life, but it was also a baptism of dedication, a willingness to leave one life and embrace another. But water cannot wash away sin and willpower cannot change human nature. All the water on the earth can't wipe away a single human sin. If every lamb from every land were brought forth and each one slain. It couldn't remove a single sin. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear that the blood of bull and goats could cover. But never remove sin. That's going to require a different kind of a sacrifice. It's going to require a sacrifice from a person who's completely identified with human beings. It's going to require a person who can completely identify with God. It's going to require a human being who has the capacity to experience the ability to be sacrificed for every human being who would ever live. It would mean a person who would have to be both God and man. That's part of the testimony that John gives. Look again in verse 29. Jesus the Lamb of God. It says in verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is interesting to me because in that public ministry, the first title that John gives isn't Jesus the Messiah, isn't Jesus the Son of God, but here the Lamb of God. It would seem about six weeks earlier that the baptism of Jesus by John had already occurred. Even though John's gospel doesn't tell us about the baptism, Jesus has already been baptized. Jesus has already gone through his wilderness temptations. He's already faced down the devil. John makes no mention of it. This is literally the first appearance of Jesus in his earthly ministry in the Gospel of John narrative. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, the feast of Passover was fast approaching. This is the feast that celebrated and commemorated the exodus of Israel from the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. It's found in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. And what a powerful picture. Every Jew would have understood both the history and the symbolism of this extraordinary image, the Lamb of God. For most young Jewish men and for most young Jewish women, this would have been their first introduction to death. Every Jewish family 
at some point prior to the Passover would have taken a lamb into their home. They would have nurtured that lamb, loved that lamb, brought that lamb up and then taken that lamb to be sacrificed. It was certainly John the Baptist's introduction to death. His father was a priest. He would have been completely familiar with the Jewish ritual of taking the lamb and slaughtering the lamb. You remember the story. God had pronounced judgment on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt for their injustices toward the children of Israel. As God prepared to execute the plagues and finally the final plague, the final judgment, the, the death of the firstborn, the faithful, those who believed God and who believed the promises of God, those who believed the message of Moses were instructed to take a lamb, a pure lamb, a spotless lamb, an innocent lamb. And then slaughter it. They were to sprinkle or generously apply its blood over the doorposts of their homes. The blood of the innocent lamb would serve as a sign that the coming judgment had already been carried out. When seeing the blood, the angel of the Lord, the death angel, the angel of judgment would pass over the home. Hence, it was called the Passover. Those who believed the testimony of Moses, those who believed the promise of God, those who applied the blood to the door of their home were saved. Those who rejected the promise of God. Those who rejected the testimony of Moses. Those who refused to apply the blood on the door. Their firstborn were destroyed. John reveals that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world. I want you to understand the progressive revelation that would take place in the scripture. Remember in the book of Genesis, Abel presents a lamb for a sacrifice. We discover in the book of Genesis that a lamb can be offered for an individual. In the book of Exodus, we discover that a lamb can be offered for a home. In the book of Leviticus, we discover that a lamb can be offered for a nation. But here in the Gospel of John, we discover something new. A lamb can be offered for the entire world. Jesus is that spotless the lamb, the lamb pictured perfect in life, sinless in death. His blood sprinkled, that is, generously applied to the doorpost of our heart and to the doorpost of our home results in salvation. The eating of the lamb, by the way, became a type and a picture of the need for spiritual nourishment by feeding on Jesus Christ, the Lord. If we believe and apply his blood to our hearts and to our homes, the Bible says he saves us. If we do not believe and apply his blood to our hearts. And to our homes, we face judgment. Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. 
In Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39, it says, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. For the Jew in the temple, every morning, every evening, a lamb was offered so long as the tabernacle in the wilderness existed, so long as the temple stood, even when the people were starving, when the city was under siege during the time of the Assyrians, when the city was under siege during the time of the Babylonians, when the city was under siege. For more than a year and people were eating the most God awful thing that you can imagine. The priests had set aside lambs. So that every morning and every evening. Even while the wall was being assaulted. They sacrificed a lamb. Until the lamb till the wall was breached and the temple was destroyed. John is in effect saying. Jesus is the one and the only permanent sacrifice for everyone, everywhere. The Lamb is spoken of by the prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah wrote, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. That's what it says in Jeremiah 11, 9. In Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Isaiah and Jeremiah present a Messiah who comes in suffering, in sacrifice, in meekness, in humility, but mostly in love. And he'll redeem, redeem his people. John is saying what was spoken about in Genesis, what was talked about in Exodus, what was revealed in Leviticus. What was reiterated in the prophets, what we have dreamed of, the Messiah, the Messiah has come. And the sacrifice itself didn't remove their sins, but rather faith, the faith of the person in the promise of God, in the word of God. That's what is going to remove the sin. By the way, under the Old Testament system, every worshiper had to bring his own lamb. If you didn't have a lamb, you had to buy a lamb. You could not borrow a lamb. No one could give you the lamb. You had to provide your own. But in the New Testament, everything is reversed. God provides the lamb. Jesus is, look, not... The Lamb of men, but he is the Lamb of God. I like that. It says, not of men, but of Tao, Theao. It is God's Lamb. The Lamb belongs to God. He supplied the Lamb. He provided the Lamb. Jesus is the willing Lamb. You know the story in Genesis 22 where Abraham is told to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his only son, whom he loves. And do you remember what Isaac says? To his father, where is the lamb? And Abraham's reply. The Lord God will provide himself. A lamb. It's so amazing. In Revelation chapter five, we hear 10,000 angels singing worthy, worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain 
John Corson would say of this passage, where is the lamb is the cry of the Old Testament. Behold, the lamb is the hope of the New Testament. Worthy is the lamb is the summation of all of eternity. At that moment, even as John saw Jesus coming, I wonder if he heard the sound of the lambs and the sheep being driven towards Jerusalem for the upcoming festival. The great sacrifice, the great humiliation of Jesus. And look at the phrase, who takes away. The Greek word is iron. It means to carry away or to bear on behalf of one as one substitute. Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb of God who bears our sins. He lifts our sins from us. And he carries them upon himself. If you don't believe me, read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, where Peter writes, Who himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. It's his life and his death. It's his resurrection. It is in his sacrifice that you are made whole and well. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sin of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Jesus appears the first time to forgive your sin. And then Jesus will appear, according to the New Testament, a second time. Not to remove your sin because your sin has already been dealt with. Because your friendship and your fellowship is established forever. By the way, the word sin is singular and not in, not plural in the original language. It's hamarsian. Jesus bore the sin of the whole world, all sin, placed in one giant package, all the sin, every sin of every man, woman and child from Adam to the last being who takes his or her last breath in eternity future. Have you ever thought about that? That's the kind of sacrifice. First, John, chapter two, verses one and two. Later, the apostle would write, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a big, long word that means the satisfying solution for the offense that's been made against God. Our sin has offended God. God is completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. And it says, not for ours only, but for the whole world. Do you remember your introduction to death? Do you remember when you first realized that the scripture was true? The soul that sins, it shall surely die. Maybe you didn't even know about that scripture when you first experienced death. What was your first experience with, with death? Was it the death of a pet? 
Was it the death of a relative or a loved one? At what point did you realize that things alive eventually die? I remember my first experience with death. When I was in kindergarten, my mother took me to my grandfather's house and I picked out a puppy from a litter. And the puppy was my dog. It wasn't my brothers and my sisters. This dog was my dog. And I named him Buster, like the dog in the shoe. You guys are way too young to remember the dog in the shoe. But Buster was sort of like half bulldog and half wiener dog. Sort of a very long, vicious thing that could kill almost anything. But he loved me and I loved him. And he was my constant and close companion in the middle of the desert. I grew up in the Mojave Desert and there wasn't a whole lot for kids to do. And first grade became second grade and second grade became third grade and fourth grade became fifth grade. And we moved and the little town in which I lived in got larger and larger. There was one main road that went through our town. It was called Hesperia Road. And then there was another one called Bear Valley Road. Bear Valley Road was where most of the traffic went. And my mother basically said, because I'd gotten a bicycle for my birthday, she said, okay, you can ride your bike, but you can't ride your bike on the main road because if you ride your bike on the main road, the dog is going to follow you because he follows you wherever you go and he could get hurt, so don't go. But I did something that I'm sure none of you did. I disobeyed my mom. I rebelled. I thought it would be okay. And so I got on my bike and I headed down to Bear Valley Road and I'm riding my bike and cars are going past and one car goes past and another car goes past. And it would seem like another car just literally went out of its way to hit my dog. And he did hit the dog. And there was my dog lying on the side of the road, breathing heavily, blood coming out of his nose, blood coming out of his ears. And at that moment, I realized That my rebellion, my disobedience, my selfishness had caused this animal to be injured. So there I was, a little kid on the side of the road, holding my dog. A good Samaritan comes by, opens up the trunk of his car, puts my bike in the trunk. He has a a blanket or a a sheet back there. And I I put it on my lap and I put the dog on my lap and and the dog continues to bleed. Now it's convulsing blood. And the, the good Samaritan finally gets me home. And so here I am. I'm arriving at home with my bike in the back, the dog in my arms. And my mother just simply said, go into the bathroom and clean yourself up. And so I went into the bathroom and I turned on the water to the bathtub and I could see the water turn from clear to red as the blood of the dog begins to fill the bathtub. And I hear a shot outside. And I realize that the dog is dead. And that I killed him. My rebellion, my selfishness, My disobedience. Every Jewish young man, every Jewish young woman was taught from an early age that as the lamb enters and matures and you head for the Passover, that this particular lamb is going to be slain because God is offended by our sin. And that offense is going to require a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is going to have to be a satisfying solution in direct proportion to the measure of the offense. 
A dog can't die for you. A lamb can't die for you. Only a Savior can die for you. And so when John the Baptist from the side of the river says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There were disciples who were standing around and every Jewish man knew exactly what he meant. That this was the sacrifice that would be the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And look at verse 30. It says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Remember what was said earlier. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. Remember, he is the voice. He is a lamp, but not the light. He is a voice, but he isn't the word. This is the Messiah who's preferred before him. It's John's way of saying he is preexistent. He existed before I existed. For he was before me. And look what it says. I did not know him. By the way. John knew Jesus. He was his cousin. They were near kinsmen. That's what we discover in Luke chapter 1, verse, verse 36. What he says is, I did not know him in the sense, but that he should be revealed to Israel. I knew that a Messiah was coming. I knew that a Messiah would be revealed to Israel. I knew that a Messiah was coming. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. The Lord told me that Messiah was coming and that I was to prepare the hearts of men and women to receive the Messiah. But you know what? John did not realize that Jesus was the Christ when he began his ministry, yet he refused to do anything other than fulfill his ministry. John acted on God's word. John acted on God's instruction. I want you to think carefully about what John is saying. He is saying, in effect, he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until it was revealed to him by special revelation. In other words, we didn't get together and, and say, hey, who's the nicest kid on the block? Well, Jesus, he's always been better than everybody else. They didn't get together and elect Jesus to be the Messiah. Something happened at the baptism of Jesus that changed John the Baptist's mind forever. You know what happened? Clouds parted. A voice spoke. And the Holy Spirit came from heaven and rested on Jesus. That changed John forever. As a matter of fact, look what it says in verses 32 and 33. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Look what the text repeats it. And John bore witness. Do you know what that means? 
John made a public declaration of, of what he knew to be true. I know that some of you think that your faith is a matter of private circumstances. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, religion and faith, it's something very personal, very private. You know, I don't want to talk about my personal and very private faith. John's personal and private faith becomes very public at this point. He goes on record for all the world to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is convinced that Jesus is God's Messiah. And the sign that God gave John the Baptist was the Messiah was the person on whom the Holy Spirit would descend upon. Look at this expression and remain upon that word remain is very important because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a specific act of service. The Holy Spirit would come upon Samson, you'll recall, when he fought against the Philistines. You'll remember that the Holy Spirit came upon David and he killed a lion and he killed a bear with his with his hands. The, the Holy Spirit came upon David and he slew a giant. The Holy Spirit came upon David and he wrote the Psalms. The Holy Spirit came upon men and women in ancient times for specific tasks. But now the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, the Messiah and Abides. That's what the word remain means. It means he comes upon Jesus and he never, ever leaves Jesus. That's the point. By the way, the dove was a sacred bird to the Jews. The dove was a symbol of peace. And the dove was a symbol of purity. And, and the dove was a symbol of innocence. And if you read the text, look what it says. You can read it for yourself. It doesn't say that a bird, a dove came out of the sky and, and it landed on Jesus's shoulder. And the, the dove landing on the shoulder was proof positive that he was the Messiah. I'm going to suggest something to you. The text says that the Holy Spirit came like a dove. That it wasn't a dove that came, but, but it came like a dove in purity, in simplicity, in gentleness, in innocence. So how did John see what cannot be seen? How did he see what is invisible? And how did he know that which is unknowable. Don't you remember when people used to talk to you about Jesus? You just need to accept Christ into your heart. You need to receive Jesus as your Savior. You need to just pray a prayer. You need to pray a prayer like this. Heavenly Father, have Jesus come into my life. I know I'm a sinner and I know I need a Savior. And something happened. The Holy Spirit showed up. You experienced the presence of God and the forgiveness of sin. You understood that you were saved and you were saved. And by special revelation, you came to the knowledge that Jesus wasn't just simply a person that you read about in a book or you saw in a picture or that your family dragged you to church week after week. You experienced a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
the Holy Spirit identified Jesus as the Messiah. And do you remember what the Bible says? The Bible says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even when he was in his mother's womb. And all of a sudden, you, you know the story. Remember, Jesus comes to John and says, you need to baptize me. And John says, hey, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And do you remember Jesus' response? Let it be done so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. You see, Jesus was going to be baptized so that he could identify with humanity. Jesus was being baptized not because he needed to repent of sin or because he was sin or, or because he needed to be washed from sin. He is going to be baptized so he can identify with each and every human being on the planet Earth. Jesus in his baptism identifies with humanity. And we in our baptism, when we come to Christ, when we receive Christ as our Savior, now we identify with him. We go on record with him. We identify with Jesus' life and we identify with Jesus' death and we identify with Jesus, his resurrection. And we, we go on record and we let the whole world know that I am a Jesus freak. And I don't care who knows about it. The spirit of God was associated with the life of God and the power of God. And the person who receives the Spirit of God has the power of God and the life of God and the care of God. And now all of a sudden we understand a little bit better what John said earlier in verse 11. He came into his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name in verses 11 and 12. And look what it says in verse 34. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. What does John mean? What does he mean by the Son of God? I'm sure you've had people say to, you know, Jesus isn't God. He's the Son of God. Just like we're all sons of God. I believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and the neighborhood of Boston. And you realize something. What John is saying is Jesus is not simply a son of God, but he uses the definite article. Jesus is the son of God. According to John, Jesus is God's only son. In John 3.16, he will refer to him as the only begotten son. Earlier in John chapter 1, he said that this Jesus came from the bosom of the Father next to the heart of God. Jesus is God's only Son, only begotten Son, only begotten Son from the bosom of the Father. So the next time the person says, hey, you're a son of God, just like we're all sons of God, laugh. Just have a big, nice, healthy laugh. And then remind them, no, no. Jesus has a unique relationship with God. All the gospel writers repeat that Jesus Christ claimed that God was his father and that he was the son of the father in a unique sense. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, even in John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 35, it says, the father loves the son. 
and has given all things into his hand. The father has a unique and specific and eternal and loving relationship with the son. The book of Acts says that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Acts 3.13. Paul says that Jesus Christ is the son of God in Romans 1.4. Paul says that Jesus that God is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 15, 6. Peter says that God is the father of the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter 1, 13. John in his epistles and in the book of Revelation says that Jesus Christ is the son of God. In each and every one of those instances that I quoted to you, we could just as easily say, Jesus is God, the son. The Jewish people were looking for a messenger like Moses. They were looking for a prophet like Isaiah or Elijah. They were looking for a monarch who would be a militant leader who would break Rome's political hold on the tiny nation and build a world empire from Jerusalem. They were looking for political and economic freedom, but not freedom from sin. You know, I think that the same is true today. There are people who want to have a friendship and a relationship with Jesus because they want to experience freedom from guilt. They want Jesus to be the satisfying psychological solution to the problem of personal failure and to the problem of sin, but not the kind of sin that sends you to hell. Just the kind of sin that offends everybody around you. But God was going to send the Messiah. Who is the Lamb of God. Filled with the Spirit of God. Who is also the Son of God. That was typified by Abel in the book of Genesis. And Isaac in the book of Genesis. By the family in Exodus, by the nation in Leviticus. But then we discover something amazing. For the whole world, for every person, in every culture, in every society, who has sinned and who needs to experience freedom and forgiveness. John presents Jesus, Lamb of God, filled with the Spirit of God, who happens to be the Son of God. When I was preparing this message, I came across a story, and it made me think about this passage. It says, one evening, a woman was driving home when she noticed a huge truck behind her. And it was driving uncomfortably close. She stepped on the gas to gain some distance from the truck. But when she sped up, the truck did too. And the faster she drove, the faster drove the truck. And now scared, she exited the freeway, but the truck stayed with her. And the woman then turned down a main street, hoping to lose her pursuer in the traffic. But the truck ran a red light and continued the chase. And reaching the point of panic, the woman whipped her car into a service station. She bolted out of her car, screaming for help. And the truck driver sprang from his truck, ran to the car, threw open the back door and grabbed a guy by the scruff of his neck who was hiding in the back seat and dragged him out of the car. 
She was running from the wrong guy. She had no idea that there was a man immediately behind her who was going to threaten her, possibly sexually assault her, possibly kill her. But the truck driver had a vantage point that she did not have. And some of you have been running from God. God has been pursuing you and God has been after you and you feel the pressure in your family and your friends and you open the Bible and you listen to the radio and everywhere you go and every voice says to you, get right with God, get right with God. Jesus loves you. Get right with God. Turn from your sin. Embrace the Savior. Because the real, the real threat to you isn't having a right relationship with God through Jesus. The real threat is the sin that persists and will eventually hurt you and then kill you. Are you running from God's provision of atonement on the cross? Are you running from the Lamb of God? Filled with the Spirit of God, who also happens to be the Son of God. It's time to give up. His plans are for good and not for evil. To rescue you. And redeem you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person here. For those who have experienced what it means to know Jesus. Lord, for that person who has relied on Jesus as a psychological solution instead of a savior. For the person who's been trying to purge themselves of their guilt. But they were unwilling or unable to embrace the savior. Heavenly Father, I pray that they would turn from their sin and they would embrace Jesus and the promise that he, he gives. He's willing to forgive sin. Lord, for that person who is haunted by death, fearful of death, reminded of death, Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would reveal to them the glory and the majesty that is Jesus. Lord, I understand that no one is going to be able to see Jesus unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. I understand that no matter how many times I get behind this pulpit, no matter how many times I open this Bible, no matter how many times I tell the story, it's only your Holy Spirit working on the heart of men and women that is going to bring them to that place of revelation. Oh, Jesus really is the Lord. Oh, Jesus really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us could confess Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. do that work that only you can do. Invade that heart in the way that only you can invade it. 
not just repentance, but regeneration. Not just cleansing of an outward lifestyle, but a transformation of hope and new life. Is that you? Do you want to have that kind of relationship with God and fellowship with God? Just lift up your hand and I'll pray for you. Praise the Lord. Good choice. Don't run from him anymore. You're running from the wrong person. Won't you receive him? Heavenly Father, for those who have raised their hands, Lord, I pray that you would invade their heart, forgive their sin, fill them with the knowledge that they're forgiven in Christ, and that they now have the freedom to walk with you. Lord, place within them a desire to pray, to know the Bible, and to seek fellowship with like-minded believers. In Jesus' name.